Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylogue is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylogue is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, July 11th, 2021. And a big congrats to Italy and all fans of the Italy soccer team for for winning the Euro Cup today. Yeah, and our condolences to... The players kicking the penalty kicks of the UK. Oh my god. Somebody's got to lose. Rough. But as always, let's start ourselves off with the show ratings this week on the Sunday shows. What were your shows uh, rated? Which ones did you cover? I I hope they weren't the same I did. (laughs) I hope so too. (laughs) I looked at Face the Nation and I looked at State of the Union. Face the Nation. I was going to give it a four, and the more I thought about it, I'm giving it a five. Wow. It was really well done and looked at the space story, but not too much, and every interview was worthwhile, and so nothing shocking, but value every segment, so I'm giving it a five. And just for those who didn't see the news this Sunday, the space story Naomi's talking about is that we did make contact with another civilization for the first time. (laughs) That was the space story, but thankfully they didn't spend too much time on it. We still had, you know, Gottlieb and other conversations. That's a negative. A bunch of rich. <laughs> it's just it's just so vague. You're like this space story. Like, well, what is this a rich space man story? got into space and he brought some friends who paid also a bunch of money. Got into the edge of space. Let's, yes. Let's be clear. Oh, there's a whole question of whether or not it's space. It, the whole thing is so boring. I cannot handle it. So anyway, kudos for Face the Nation for not going too deeply on that. And that's a five. That's a five. And then State of the Union. Who hosted? Jake Tapper. Okay. Good question. I think I'm going to give it a four, just because I'm in a nice mood right now. Really, it could be a three. It's been a lot of time on the space story, but the rest of the interviews were worthwhile. All right. No, I'm not. No, I'm going to give it a more solid four. There were definitely several things that I appreciated that I have not seen in other places that Jake Tapper noted or highlighted, and I'm going to talk about it today. So definitely a four. So is a good episode. Yeah. How about you, Brendan? So I took a look at Meet the Press, I took a look at Fox News Sunday, and I looked at This Week. Everything hosted by all the normal players. This Week was actually a pretty good episode. That is a four. There was a very important, I guess I should say important questions were asked of Anthony Fauci. And then we had Eric Adams, who is the incoming, well, I should say, he won the Democratic Party's primary for the New York City mayor race, but he is very much likely to be mayor of New York City. So that was an interesting interview as well. The first Sunday interview by Eric Adams. Oh, he was also on State of the Union as well. Okay, this is his first Sunday of interviews. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Then Fox News Sunday, there was, hmm, you know, this is probably, I think I have to give it a four as well. 
It was a good episode. I did not necessarily appreciate that leading the episode was the special session that has been called in Texas by the GOP to extend their focus on cultural issues. But there was a tough interview of Texas Governor Abbott, and I think just based on when people were available at different times of the morning, that ended up being the leading segment on Fox News. But there was still a really, really good interview with the press secretary at the Pentagon, which I thought was interesting to begin with, that we had the press secretary and not the secretary of defense. Two people who have the word secretary in their name, but very different levels of organization. Uh, But still, a very important interview. And then, so that's a four. Meet the press, I also have to give a four. It could have been a five. I want to say it could have been a five, if not for Richard Branson. Virgin Atlantic, billionaire, went into space and interrupted our feed of Meet the Press. So literally, 30 minutes of Meet the Press was missing from our feed here on the West Coast. I imagine that there was a full episode that took place. I mean, we have the transcript of it, but we were not able to see it. And so therefore, I cannot give it a five. But what I saw was of five-level quality, but who knows what dipped in the middle of that episode. We just don't know. And I have to say, Meet the Press... Often you can access their show, just the audio version of it, through their podcast, but as of this recording at 10.19 p.m. on the West Coast, it has not been released. Which is very unusual. Jaw-dropping, because they're usually the first audio out. Exactly. So, there we are. Meet the Press, also a four. Four, 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 right down the line. Okay, Naomi, why don't we begin? I guess you can begin this time. I did last time. So, with your quality or questionable... So my quality moment is another climate change conversation, not even a conversation, climate change question on Face the Nation. Now, if you remember last week, Ed O'Keefe was on, he was hosting, and he had some really interesting questions about climate change to governor of, I can't remember what his name, of Utah, and also, I can't remember her first name, Governor Brown from Oregon. Listen, I know for sure it was the governors of Utah and Oregon. Anyway, they were good questions. I think it's Kate Brown. Kate Brown, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was Kathy Brown. But yes, good questions. And so today, John Dickerson was back. He took a break for the fourth. And he was back today. And he was talking to Scott Kirby. Now, Scott Kirby is the CEO of United Airlines. And Face the Nation often does this, right? They'll have like yep. an industry expert or leader and talking about, you know, how something's impacting their industry. And most of the conversation was about how is travel, how is tourism, how is aviation impacted now because of COVID and the economy and blah, blah, blah. But there was a really good question about climate change that totally caught me off guard and I thought was really valuable. Take a listen. Let me uh, ask you about uh, climate change. We've had another week of of extreme weather, and I know you've made some commitments to changing the the footprint of United Airlines. But let me ask you another question, which is climate is changing the way we travel, more delays. It's actually changing the way the planes fly. How do you have to think through in business uh, the effects of climate change on the airline industry? Well, first, solving climate change is the most important problem for our generation. I believe that personally. Uh, and United Airlines is, is doing all kinds of things that are innovative and, and only one to do it. It is impacting our business. I mean, hurricane last week, 
you know, the first hurricane, that's the earliest I can ever remember hurricanes. Uh, the number of thunderstorm, thunderstorm activity, as there's more heat in the atmosphere, more thunderstorms is making it harder and harder. So what we have to do as an aviation industry and United Airlines is get better at dealing with bad weather because we are going to have more weather extremes. But that sounds easier than, I mean, get better at bad weather. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of people being stuck in airports waiting for planes to start to fly again. Yeah, it's really, it is, it's much more difficult. We are working on technology to do things like keep the ramp open. Uh, that's one of the biggest things that shuts down airports. If there's a lightning strike within five miles of the airport, it's closed for 30 minutes. And trying to figure out ways that we can keep the ramp open, as an example, uh, to fly when there is weather in the vicinity, but it's not as bad. Really, really good question there. An so interesting good? discussion. Yeah, pretty brief, but worthwhile. And I, I think the thing that stood out to me is I just want to see more climate change conversations to people who aren't scientists or aren't working directly on climate change policy because climate change impacts everyone all industries and everyone is kind of grappling with it and trying to figure out what are the mitigations that work for their given situation and so it's definitely newsworthy in my mind yeah well two things to say about that number one climate change yes it was actually covered on meet the press it was the entire data download was about climate change and that we've had extreme weather events all over the place, left and right, from, I mean, I mean, north and south, I should say, from Texas having that extreme cold snap that made the power go out for four freaking days, and then the northern states dealing with record-setting heat just a few months later. But at the same time, Chuck Todd talked about how this isn't just happening in the northern hemisphere, it's also happening in the southern hemisphere that is experiencing all sorts of terrible situations like hottest June ever in New Zealand, which should be experiencing its winter at this time, and Hong Kong having its hottest May ever. So that was really good to see on Meet the Press again. Other thing that brings to mind is an interesting fact that I learned a few years ago, which is, you know, those planes that fly into hurricanes, the AWACS, as they call them? And they go straight in and they get all the information about the hurricane. And then they I'm sure there's a plane out. that does it, but I yeah. had no idea what it was or who. Yeah. Anyway, I once got to see a presentation by one of the pilots of one of those planes. And the pilot was asked about what kind of special features the plane has to be able to survive in a hurricane. Literally, it's flying into a hurricane right through the eye wall of the hurricane. Just the worst part of a hurricane. And his answer was, none whatsoever. Planes are just really strong. They're really well built. And if you fly them right, they usually are okay in even extremely bad weather. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, I don't think Scott Kirby wants to do that, but yes. yes. <laughs> but it does sound like if there's a little bit of lightning, your plane can probably still take off. Right, which is what he's kind of yes, saying, exactly. is that they need to reconsider the yeah. parameters in which... This isn't kids swimming in a pool at the YMCA. These are planes. Right. Brendan, do you have a quality or questionable moment? Well, I also want to say, I mean, we could try to mitigate the changes of the climate, which would be better than just flying <laughs> them through the, through the hellscape of weather that we are creating. Correct. <laughs> just I want to add that for listeners who are like annoyed, <laughs> maybe, by my response. What's your quality or questionable? So my, so yours was a quality? It was. All right, then I'll call mine a questionable. <laughs> so... This is a quality question by George Stephanopoulos. A questionable, I guess, 
I guess the answer also is pretty good by, by Anthony Fauci. So I guess it is a quality. But the questionable thing is the FDA and what the hell they're doing. Anyway, take a listen. One of the states with low vaccination rates is Arkansas. The governor, Asa Hutchison, is up next. His state is 44th now in the country. And he said that the lack of full authorization from the FDA is contributing to vaccine hesitancy. How do you respond to that? And how far do you think we are from full authorization? You know, I think the governor does have a point there. There are certainly some people who, when you use the terminology emergency use authorization, they kind of think it's a, a tenuous uh, data showing that it's works so that it's safe. That's not the case. In some emergency use authorization for other products, the amount of data just barely gets to show you that the benefit is definitely worth any risk. When you're dealing with the data that we have now, George, you're talking about hundreds of millions of people who've been vaccinated. And in every country you go to, you see that the effectiveness and the safety of the vaccines are very high. So although it's understandable, quite understandable, that some people might say, well, we want to wait for the full approval. That's really only a technical issue. It's the FDA dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But there's no doubt in my mind that these vaccines are going to get full approval because of the extraordinary amount of positive data. But the governor is correct when he says that there are some people who are saying that, who understandably saying, no, no, I want to wait. What we're trying to do is get the information to them to say that the data are really overwhelming in the positive sense. So this is a really important point, and I really appreciated George not only bringing this up, the idea that the FDA's failure to fully authorize the vaccines is leading to hesitancy, but the fact that George's specific question is, how far do you think we are from full authorization, right? Like, that is the real question. How do you respond to it? But how far are we from authorization? And that does bother me that there are two questions in one. We do hate that. But Fauci doesn't answer that. No information on when we're expected to see that. Fauci is acknowledging that indeed this is causing hesitancy. Hesitancy is causing people not to get the vaccine. People not getting the vaccine are ending up in the hospital, are dying. So this is a hugely important issue. And what the hell is the FDA doing, right? Like, Think about it this way. What is Fauci saying? His argument is, look, we call it emergency use authorization, but this isn't like with other products. This is this is so high in the benefits and so low in the risk. It's, it's really just about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. People should assume that this is really, really strong. This is good, right? That's what Fauci's saying. Yeah, I hear where he's going with this. But think back to just this pandemic. Within this last year, the FDA has not once, not twice, but three times revoked emergency use authorizations that they had for treatments of coronavirus. They revoked it for chloroquine in June of last year. They revoked it for hydrochloroquine, both things that they had under emergency use authorization, the exact same phrase, and then just this April 16th, the FDA revoked its emergency use authorization for monoclonal antibodies, the one called BAMLAMINIVAB, I can't pronounce it, but you've heard of it, the, the antibodies. Seriously, 
Left and right, the FDA is revoking emergency use authorization. But left and right over 15 months is a smidge much. But it's for this exact issue. The COVID-19 pandemic. These are things that they authorized and then they revoked it. So someone looking at this vaccine and looking for an excuse to say, look, I don't want to take it. They could just revoke it like those other things. Okay. Okay. What's What's your point? My point is... In comparison to most emergency use authorizations, the COVID-19 vaccine for all three manufacturers, J&J, Pfizer, and Moderna, have way more data and studies than most emergency use authorizations. So the people who are skeptical or who are hesitant, which I think is still a very generous term, are not looking at the rich methodology of the vaccine. Right. Right. Exactly. I agree. Okay. But you're like... (laughs) The point I'm making is... You're making it seem that these people are doing all this research and they're finding skepticism in the FDA. No. And I don't think that's the case. No. I'm saying there is a term used for how we're able to access the vaccine. That term is the same term that the FDA has three times revoked in the last year. Yes. Right? Yeah. So don't use that term, FDA. Wake up. If you say that this is a... a, Listen. If you say that this is a better treatment than these other treatments, then use the words to make it clear to people that way. Okay, like, Redden, I, I, I Don't call it emergency use authorization. The, okay, we are not scientists to then change the terminology of how a highly regulated industry determines what is safe to be on the market. But I do think there's the case to be made that they're not being transparent and saying, look, this emergency use authorization is by far and away the safest emergency use authorization we've ever had. And in comparison, it has 15 times more participants in the studies than before. Or we expedited this because of the pandemic and because of the need and we did it blank times faster. But you know what? Because of that, we're able to get the full use authorization probably 60% sooner. There's other ways to be transparent other than claiming for them to change the emergency youth authorization. I get that there's like Beyond just this clip from Dr. Fauci that there's people saying that FDA should give the full authorization, but I'm not, I don't know, I don't buy that suddenly if if the FDA gave full authorization, suddenly tons of people in Arkansas would be lining up and the cl- vaccine clinics would be packed. Get over. No, I don't, I don't believe that at all. But it can make a difference. And this is a global pandemic. So in a global pandemic, maybe you want to change your public facing messaging and terminology to make it completely transparent how safe something is. And when you say we're letting you use it just because it's an emergency, that sends a very different message. So yes, you should change your public facing messaging during a global pandemic when lives are on the line. We have a whole show to get to and who knows what else we'll disagree with. Yeah. Yep. I always like it when we disagree because I think it makes for more fun listening yes it's always good audio but (laughs) naomi what do you want to say about journalism today maybe there's an opportunity for disagreement there well it's continuing one of my things i want to look at is another interview with dr fauci so i figured it'd be a good segue but my something about journalism is there were multiple instances in today's episode of state of the union which i felt like jake tapper was doing something that i really appreciated specifically he was telling the untold perspective or the perspective that doesn't get highlighted enough. And 
so many like there's so many variations of this like think of the new york times going to ohio i don't know 50 million times the last four years trying to understand like the white angry republican right or Mm -hmm. people trying to understand over and over and over and over again for instance why people aren't getting vaccinated as opposed to how people feel who are vaccinated and there were a lot of different instances of this and i thought jake tapper did it well the first untold perspective that i wanted to share is looking at how vaccinated people feel right now when so many people aren't getting vaccinated take a listen to this clip of the dr fauci interview today on state of the union the former health and human services secretary under president obama kathleen sebelius said this week that she's frustrated she thinks it's time for the biden administration to push schools and businesses and others to mandate the vaccine she said specifically quote I'm trying to restrain myself, but I've kind of had it. You know, we're going to tiptoe around mandates. It's like, come on, I'm kind of over that. I want to make sure that people I deal with don't have it so I don't transmit it to my granddaughter, unquote. Now, Sebelius is giving voice to the frustration a lot of vaccinated Americans have about how it seems like society is bending over backwards to not offend people who refuse to get vaccinated. Um, You know, people who are vaccinated have to wear masks on airplanes because airplanes don't want to mandate that you have to be vaccinated to fly. I know you've been very clear that the government isn't mandating vaccines, but do you think it's generally a good idea for businesses or schools to require vaccinations? Right. I have been of this opinion, and I remain of that opinion, that I do believe at the local level, Jake, there should be more mandates. There really should be. We're talking about life and death situation. We've lost 600,000 Americans already, and we're still losing more people. There have been 4 million deaths worldwide. This is serious business. So I am in favor of that. You know, one of the things that will happen, and I think the hesitancy at the local level of doing mandates is because the vaccines have not been officially fully approved. But people need to understand that the amount of data right now that shows a high degree of effectiveness and a high degree of safety is more than we've ever seen with emergency use authorization. So these vaccines are as good as officially uh, approved with all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. It hasn't been done yet because the FDA has to do certain things, but it's as good as done. So people should really understand that. But they're waiting now until you get an official approval before. And I think when you do see the official approval, Jake, you're going to see a lot more mandates. So here's Fauci. Seriously, he seems pissed at the FDA for just not approving it already. He's like, oh, they've got other things, whatever the hell they got to do. Like, we're going to see more mandates as well once we get approval. It's not just about hesitancy. It's about encouraging those in power to require the vaccine anyway i'm not here to argue my point (laughs) okay go ahead continue your point again i do think there's something to be said that once the full authorization happens it'll be hopefully a new phase in this never-ending pandemic but overall i so appreciated jake tapper bringing this perspective of people who have been careful throughout the pandemic took the advice of public health officials got the vaccine 
you know, help their neighbors get the vaccine, anyone who in their family who is eligible to get the vaccine. And cases are still going up in certain parts of the country. It's maddening. And I appreciated seeing the outrage. Yeah. And I also really appreciated Fauci for his honest answer. Right. I mean, he did this during the Trump administration. He said, look, this is where I stand. This is my position. But he made it clear what it was. And he spoke truthfully. And for anyone who thought, oh, well, you know, during the Biden administration, he's more going to be like a quote unquote team player and just speak for the administration. It's like, no, he's a scientist. And yeah, he's a leader and he's a member of the administration, but he's beyond that. He's not just a member of the administration. He's going to tell the truth and answer truthfully during this pandemic. And so I think this is a great example. And it's something I haven't seen in a while from him. I also really liked the, the quote that we heard in the question that Jake Tapper had from Sibelius saying she's just had it with people dancing around the mandate question. Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> I have a lot of feelings. I feel like this could go on a long tangent, but it's all very valid, I guess is what I'm saying. There's a couple other points from today's episode of State of the Union in which Jake shared a very real but often unheard perspective. The second one came in the interview with Congressman Adam Kinzinger. The congressman is from Illinois, and he is a never-Trumper and... He had the perspective, and we've had, we, we've shown clips of him talking about his frustration with the Trump administration or from Republicans, colleagues of his that spew misinformation. And he did it again today. I know Jake Tapper loves booking these type of people on, but it would be valuable in the other shows too. Take a listen. A number of your Republican colleagues are expressing outrage over President Biden's call for door-to-door outreach to encourage Americans to get vaccinated Uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene compared those going door to door to Nazi brown shirts. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert called them needle Nazis. Senator Ted Cruz said it sounds to him like Soviet Russia. Uh, What's your response to all that? It's in Jake. It's insanity. It's absolute insanity. Now, what President Biden said, maybe you could have said it slightly differently, is we're willing to come to your house to give you the vaccine. At no point was anybody saying they're going to break down your door and jam a vaccine in your arm despite your protests. This is outrage politics that is being played by my party and it's gonna get Americans killed. We are on a, our our party has been hijacked. My party has been hijacked. It is on its way to the ground and for some people it's a fun ride, right? We can put out this outrageous stuff on Twitter. Yeah, I'm getting all these retweets and everybody knows me, I'm famous, but this plane is gonna crash into the ground. Listen, if you are a Republican voter, do not listen to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. The vaccine is safe. COVID is real. Get vaccinated. Because if you're going to listen to the outrage, by the way, in March, she's bragging about Donald Trump creating the vaccine. And now she's saying basically the vaccine is going to kill you. Uh, I call on Leader McCarthy. I call on every leader in the Republican Party to stand up, say get vaccinated, and, and to call out these garbage politicians these absolute clown politicians playing on your vaccine fears for their own selfish gain. And I know you're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. The vaccine uh, is the best protection there is against the deadly pandemic. Wow. That was a strong answer. Yeah. Republicans bashing on irresponsible Republicans. Here for it. 
Well, that's why he's invited on, right? Exactly. I mean, it's literally Jake why Jake is there has for him it on. too. Yeah. Also, <laughs> you know who's also there for it? Chuck Todd, who had him on booked, but he, that was in the black hole of the <laughs> SpaceX or not SpaceX? What is it? Virgin Galactic uh, <laughs> that blew a hole right through the middle of Meet the Press. Yeah. Also, a shout out to the congressman for using garbage politicians. Yes. I've really made it, friends. Yeah. He's listening to Polylog. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the fourth time we've I think we've showed him. So, <laughs> so that was a good moment in terms of the not heard enough perspective. Well, and I also want to give Kinzinger credit. He's kind of like pulling a previous clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene there, saying back in March she was saying that Donald Trump created the vaccine and bragging about it. Right? Exactly. Totally calling out the hypocrisy. Yep. Garbage. <laughs> I know. And I, I also like that he, he's not just saying, like, these are these people are acting, you know, irresponsibly. He's just like, do if you're a Republican voter, do not listen to these people. Write them off. Yeah. Clown Republicans is what he calls them. <laughs> so the last clip from State of the Union that I wanted to share, like I said, there was quite a bit of space exploration by rich men that was discussed on the shows on all the shows everywhere on twitter just so much freaking talk about it and it was indulged on state of the union overall i would say but there was this one little moment in which jake tapper acknowledged that maybe some people don't care the clip that I'm about to show you is from a panel of different space bros. And what? It was a bunch of spacemen. I don't know. Men who are interested in space. Space bros. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. And specifically, the who's going to be in this clip is Hakeem Ulesi. He's an astrophysicist. He has been at the Florida Institute of Technology for over 10 probably almost 15 years but he's kind of often and he's kind of done work for nasa but he's often in media as a space proponent space fan space expert hakeem let me ask you because i'm sure there are some people out there watching thinking you know i don't know what all these billionaires are doing um because you know we have lots of problems on this planet right uh in terms of health and education yeah. and jobs and this and that um, I imagine you have a more optimistic view of what they're doing. Why should we not view this as, boy, these people have too much money? Well, maybe they do have too much money. That's not for us to decide. But what we're seeing here is the fact that economy today is not a zero-sum game, right? We create economy. And so we can do both. We don't have to choose, can we go to space or take care of ourselves? We can do both. And the thing about space also is that it is opening up a whole new economy. And so as we talk about, oh, is the price going to come down, then what drove down the price of aviation? The fact that we have hundreds of airplanes in the air every day. Are we going to get there with the space economy? Maybe not. The price has already dropped a big factor, right? You talked about 28 billion. Now we're talking, excuse me, 28 million. Now we're talking 200,000. So who knows? Maybe 20,000 in the future. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, people who could drop, you know, $20,000 for a five-minute ride. Yeah, I'm still of the team. I don't care. But I understand a lot of other people do. And I appreciate Jake Tapper bringing in the voice of the person who is like, hey, can't we just tax these people and get better health care for everyone? 
That's the subtext <laughs> right, of that question. Right, yes. Or the subtext is, why aren't these billionaires putting their money towards helping people? Because there are other billionaires yeah, who have done Instead that. of the thrill of space, how about the thrill of helping people? So those are kind of three not heard enough perspectives that I felt seen in. So that was a lot of journalism for me. Brendan, did you have something to say about journalism? Yeah, I wanted to look at two interviews of political leaders that took place. These are leaders we don't often see on the Sunday shows. And this is, as I mentioned earlier, Governor Greg Abbott, Republican governor of Texas. He led the Fox News Sunday episode this week. And then I wanted to talk about Eric Adams, who, as I mentioned earlier, won the Democratic primary for mayor of New York and is very likely to be mayor of New York City. So to begin, let's take a look at how Chris Wallace asked some pretty tough questions of Governor Greg Abbott. And this is within the frame of the special session that the legislature of Texas recently called to cover additional topics outside of their traditional period of legislating. Governor, let me ask you about the special session in general, because some Democrats say, and this is the word they use, that you are using it to pander to Trump supporters on the far right of the Republican Party. I want to put up some of the the key agenda items. Uh, Voting reform, as we talked about, border security, social media censorship, transgender student athletes, critical race theory, abortion. And your critics point out that what isn't on the agenda for the special session is the electrical grid in Texas, which uh, broke down during the, the, the deep freeze last winter. Uh, more than 150 people were killed. More than 4 million Texans lost their, their power during that. And, and the question is, why wouldn't you address an issue like that that affects people's everyday lives? So you you raise two issues, and let me answer both of them. Uh, One is, if if you look at all these issues that are on the special session agenda, uh, these aren't new items. All of these items were up on the agenda uh, during the regular session. They got close to the finish line, and the only reason why they didn't get across the finish line uh, is because, as you pointed out earlier, uh, the Democrats decided to abandon their job and walk off the job. They did not give us the time to get those other items across the finish line. And so all we're trying to do is to uh, continue to achieve exactly what we were trying to achieve during the regular session. I need to point out to you, Chris, exactly uh, why uh, the the power grid is not on the special session. uh, And that's because during the regular session, uh, there were robust laws that were passed by the Texas legislature uh, that provide uh, all the changes that are needed uh, to make sure that we will have an effective power grid. So I give Chris Wallace a lot of credit there for asking that tough question and saying, look, why are you just covering these, you know, social issues? that Republicans live for rather than real issues that affect people's lives in a disaster that killed more than 100 Texans just a few months ago. At the same time, Abbott himself proves to be a pretty effective communicator in providing what seems like very reasonable answers to both of these issues. But Chris Wallace isn't done there. Chris Wallace goes on, pushes back, in fact, particularly on the issue of 
the power grid. Governor, I've got limited time, sir. I got limited time. And the question, no, sir, the the question I have is the power grid isn't fixed. You talk about it being fixed uh, by the legislature, but you had over a thousand unplanned outages in June. And ERCOT, the agency regulating, is already asking people in Texas to voluntarily conserve energy because it's in danger of being overloaded. So you haven't solved the problem. Real quickly, Chris, well, what happened in, in June uh, did not have enough time for all the changes that were made during the regular session to go into effect. So Chris Wallace is not impressed with the issue of the power being resolved in Texas and the fact that the legislature and the governor are deciding, the GOP, in fact, are deciding to focus on other topics, which he asked some tough questions about, particularly around immigration. But at the end... I did also appreciate Chris Wallace acknowledging Governor Abbott's participation in the interview. Governor Abbott, thank you. Thanks for your time. I got to say, some of your fellow Republican governors stick to friendly venues as life preservers. I appreciate you coming on and being willing to answer all our questions, sir. Thank you, Chris. Gives us a little transparency into the booking process on Fox News Sunday and the frustrations that I imagine that Chris Wallace has when he sees all of these government leaders from other states probably booked on Fox and Friends and other Fox programs in the same building, and yet they will not go on his show because they're afraid of a tough interview. But I also want to give Chris Wallace credit for not saying, you know, not lowering his standards and making easy interviews just so he can attract those sorts of leaders. Yeah, not downgrading his standards for his interviews. Right, to get the access. Right. And I think there's, this could be made in a lot of places on different issues, and Texas just got huge national press for those power outages. But there's questionable legislatures and governors also (laughs) all, all over the country focusing on lower priorities Mm -hmm. for their own constituencies yeah all right now let's turn to this week right on this week which was hosted by george this week we had on eric adams the new york city mayoral nominee for the democratic party this was the first time i've seen him actually on a sunday show as we mentioned and here i want to start with a little clip by eric adams that was used to start the show and then we'll roll right into a clip I wanted to play that showcases Adams sharing what makes him different from other Democrats in the Democratic Party right now. I am the face of the new Democratic Party. Look at me, and you're seeing the future of the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party fails to recognize what we did here in New York, They're going to have a problem in the midterm elections, and they're going to have a problem in the presidential elections. What should Democrats across the country take away from your victory? Uh, We can't be so idealistic that we're not realistic. Realistic. Cities are hurting all across America, and New York personifies that pain, uh, the inequalities, the gun violence, uh, the lack of really looking after everyday blue-collar workers, I like to say. And we have failed for so many years, and we've allowed the fallout of the Trump administration to have an overreach in philosophy and not on the ground real issues that are facing everyday New Yorkers. So is it, fa- is it fair to call you an anti-woke Democrat? <laughs> no, I, I, I've, some of us never went to sleep. 
That's the problem. You know, a 35-year record of fighting for reform, but public safety, a person who was arrested by police, assaulted by police, but also lost a childhood friend to gang, to gang violence. And so I never went to sleep. And people who have finally uh, realized that there are issues out here believe they can carve the entire Democratic agenda. I absolutely hate George Stephanopoulos asking if he's the anti-woke Democrat. Like, it's... It was just stuck out like a sore thumb when he asked it. Well, it's also the idea. It's also bad journalism. Yeah. Because what people determine is woke or not woke or anti-woke are so completely subjective. Yes. So to use that term to then classify what type of politician you are, like you could be talking completely different things. Bad use of language. Yeah. It's really bad use of language. And it's really stupid. It's like... Oh, I'm going to use this trendy word and do a little twist on it. Oh, you're the anti-woke Democrat. Yeah, I, I absolutely hated that. Hated it. Uh, Eric Adams here. Now, this is I'm not a New Yorker. This is an interesting introduction to him. I, I have to say, just from a communication standpoint, the little clip they had of him as a candidate saying, I am the face of a new Democratic Party. Look at me. You are seeing the future. Of the Democratic Party. I mean, it sounds like he's in Iron Man or something, you know, like, I don't know. I know, but that's a choice of the show rather than of... No, he said those words. I know, but I'm sure he said lots of words while he was campaigning, and it was the show who chose to use that as representing all of this man. Yes, yes. Yes, and speaking of choices made by this week, there were some real weird choices that were made. One of them also being the fact that at no point in the introduction to Eric Adams, and and at no point in the conversation that covered his top priority, which is crime, was it mentioned by either the show or Eric Adams himself that he was a captain in the police force. But speaking of that topic, the issue of crime and safety was clearly not just the top issue, that Adams put forward during his campaign, it's an issue that he kept returning to again and again throughout the interview. So I'm going to play two more clips. They're going to focus on this issue of crime. There's a few things to think about while you're listening to this. Number one is how frequently Adams pivots to this issue of crime and combating it, and also how difficult these questions are. They're not really hard-hitting interviews. These aren't Chris Wallace level questions. They're not tough. They're not challenging. They're more like, let's introduce you sort of questions. Almost like George's doing a, I don't know, a sit down at the... Like he's on Good Morning America. Yeah, on Good Morning America. Exactly. You made combating crime your number one issue again and again and again. Homicides, gun violence spiking here in New York City, other big cities across the country. Do you know what's behind it? A, a number of things. Uh, if I always talk about Archbishop Desmond Tutu quote, we spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river. No one goes upstream and prevent them from falling in in the first place. Our city and country, we have become a place where all we do is wait downstream and pull people out. 30% of our inmates in uh, prison are dyslexic. 
So if we just do dyslexia screening in upstream, we could prevent some of the crime that we're looking at downstream, foster care failure. We feed crime in America and in New York. We need to stop the feeders of crime. And then we must have an immediate response. We should create something like the JTTF, Joint Terrorist Task Force. This is what we did to fight terrorism. I'm here in Times Square every morning. It's starting to come back to life and feel <laughs> yes. it every morning. But so many of these big office buildings in Midtown still empty are they going to come back yes they are uh, we are not going to allow miami and other places to take our businesses here's what we must do number one my high income earners they 65,000 new yorkers pay 51 percent of our income taxes you speak with them the tax is not the problem public safety is the problem we're going to let them know that this city is going to be safe our individuals my accountants uh, my stockbrokers they take the subway system they don't want to ride the trains. If we don't have a safe subway system, no one is going to fill these office buildings and it's not going to feed our economy that we're looking for. And so once we turn around our public safety and then become a city, we're too expensive, too bureaucratic, too difficult to open a business here. We want to change that and incentivize companies coming here. We want to be the center of life science and biotech, uh, self-driving cars. This is going to be a place where we build empires and not destroy them. So this was an interesting uh, exchange. I, th I think we could spend a long time talking about it, but I do know we need to move on. I don't know if there's anything that stood out to you, Naomi, that you wanted to point out. I mean, this is just the start for Adams, right? He's going to get a lot more national attention and national press and what he says will matter to New Yorkers, but for people everywhere a lot of times. Yeah, and as we know, every New Yorker who is mayor wants to run for president. It's been the case for, I don't know, the last four or so mayors at least. So I imagine he is trying to build that up as well before he even gets into the office. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, the question was, do you know what's behind the current increase in crime? And Adams's answer is, our city, we've become a place where all we do is wait downstream and pull people out. But the spike itself is potentially because a lot of the programs that were put in place to provide support for people so they don't return to crime or they don't go into crime were canceled during COVID. And therefore, those people didn't get support that they would have gotten if it weren't for COVID. But his argument is more... We just don't provide that support at all, ever. We never did. We don't. And that's a problem. He's talking more like long-term as an issue and about long-term policy and not necessarily answering the specific question about the current spike in crime. Also, he's like, to hell with Miami. We hate Miami. <laughs> Miami's stealing our I business. know. I saw. That was, that was an interesting, interesting answer. But look at how he pivots from the question about the the office buildings coming back and saying it's crime that's stopping people from wanting to return to their offices. And that is not the answer I would have expected. Well, he was also saying it's crime that's preventing high income New Yorkers from returning, right. which is a different question than George's. When are the office buildings going to be full again? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like throughout this interview, they were not the questions I was expecting. They were not the answers I was expecting. So there were just lots of moments where I was like, oh, oh, interesting choice. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't see that coming. All right. Naomi, what did you want to say about politics this week? So for our last segment, we're going to actually combine our politics because we both decided to focus on Afghanistan. There's a lot of coverage right now about President Biden's decision to pull out all 
military troops out of Afghanistan. There's other issues about the potential risk of Taliban taking over the country and also the risk of translators and other support Afghanis who have helped the U.S. The and, risk to them, yeah. Right, a risk to them if slash when the U.S. and our allies leave and they can't leave as well. So lots of stories have been happening lately. Biden gave a speech this week about it. I was particularly impressed with a conversation I saw on Face the Nation in which John Dickerson talked to former DHS Secretary Jay Johnson. I thought it was... Yeah, Afghanistan was covered pretty extensively by both Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday. And to begin it, I felt like Meet the Press did a really good job. Chuck Todd started out by talking about the timeline of our entry to Afghanistan, a little bit about what the initial mission was. We entered Afghanistan in the fall of 2001, very shortly after the 9-11 attacks, essentially had taken control of the country by December. And then it wasn't until 2011 that we finally captured Osama bin Laden, but the fight continued and right up to this day. Richard Engel was on the ground, as he always is, foreign correspondent for NBC, talking a little bit about just how the fight is going between the Afghanistan military, which represents the government of Afghanistan, and the Taliban that is once again trying to take control of the government and turn it more towards what it used to be in 2001. And one thing that Richard Engel mentioned was that there are essentially just 30,000 what he called commandos up against three times as many Taliban forces which gives you a real sense of what the fighting on the ground actually looks like. Yeah, on Face the Nation, John Dickerson spoke to department or former DHS Secretary Jay Johnson, and they started off the interview, I thought, with a really important question about the state of Afghanistan now in comparison to 20 years ago. And what stood out to me in this interview is I just thought... (laughs) Like, Jay Johnson is literally the reflection of military politics done well, and I think he does a good job in bringing in his professional expertise and kind of guesstimation. Mr. Secretary, let's start with Afghanistan. You were the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, which was created after a terrorist attack that was born in Afghanistan. Give me your assessment of the situation there now and if it still has the possibility to harbor terrorism in the way uh, that people worried about 20 years ago. Well, in many respects, much has changed in Afghanistan and much has stayed the same. I went to Bagram Air Base for the first time in 2009 when I was general counsel of the Department of Defense. And I recall a missile attack on the base the night I arrived. A missile landed about 500 feet from where I put my head on the pillow. The mission in Afghanistan was, is, and should be preventing another terrorist organization from establishing a caliphate in Afghanistan with the ability to launch a large-scale attack on our nation like a 9-11. We have, to a very large degree, uh, achieved that over the last... 20 years. President Biden asked, when are we leaving? If not now, when? If I were advising the president, I probably would have recommended that we keep in place in country uh, a highly trained force of about 2,500 or so 
for counterterrorism purposes. Um, the president, I know, understands the stakes. Uh, he's heard it before, eight years as vice president, and has decided, uh, along with the support of most Americans, apparently, that it is simply time to get out. Uh, we will, it seems, maintain a, a quick response force on the borders, on the outskirts of Afghanistan, in the event we see that a terrorist organization is beginning to uh, plant another foot there. So several things in this. One, the state of Afghanistan now is very different than it was 20 years ago. And I thought it was interesting that Jay Johnson kind of admits that he probably wouldn't have recommended that we leave, but that kind of President Biden is has heard all the advice for years and years and years, right? This isn't just kind of like a decision made on a whim. Yeah, it's not like he's never engaged with this issue before. I mean, he engaged in it deeply. He was in the room when Osama bin Laden was killed. You know, the the not the room with Osama bin Laden, but the situation room in the White House. Vice President Biden was all about, you know, smaller special forces focused solely on reducing terrorism rather than trying to build up the nation or secure democratic institutions. He was kind of all about that sort of thing. And it seems like now he's saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but they're going to be out of the country. They need to be out of the country. This is many years later and things have progressed. They have, we have to see progress. We have to get out of there. Yeah, absolutely. And later in the interview, Jay Johnson kind of explains that our, if we do need to come back or if there is a need to kind of work on an issue that's happening in Afghanistan, our ability to do that quickly has greatly improved in comparison to when it was kind of no infrastructure was in place to be able to do that 20 years ago. Very interesting. Yeah, and kind of on that same point, that was touched on by Richard Engel in his report that he filed from Afghanistan. He spoke with a member of parliament who had served as a peace negotiator with the Taliban and has been apparently targeted for assassination in the country twice. And he asked her directly about the threat of terrorism. Do you think Afghanistan could once again be a springboard for international terrorism? Even worse than 9-11, I'm telling you. Because over the past 20 years, um, you have invested blood and treasure. You are the main enemy now. Why do you think you will be safe? Why do you think you will be protected? You have killed people in Afghanistan. Yeah, and to her point there, which is a point that I haven't heard spoken on these Sunday shows before about the threat to the U.S. as a result of the U.S.'s presence. And the U.S.'s engagement in Afghanistan has had a cost, not just for the Taliban, not just for U.S. troops, which, by the way, there are 20,000 U.S. service members who were wounded in action in Afghanistan. Often we just talk about the number killed. 20,000 were wounded. And according to a report in ABC News, there were 35,000 to 40,000 civilians who died during the war in Afghanistan. That's a lot of people who, and a lot of potential family members as well, to this day, that could be very frustrated and angry at the United States. But what I really liked about the conversation on Meet the Press is that there were real discussions about the legacy, not that we leave in Afghanistan, but of the mission that we had there. Like, did we even succeed? Chuck Todd spoke 
with Senator Jack Reed. He is a Democrat from Rhode Island. He is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he was around from the very beginning of our engagement in Afghanistan. And this is something we've been talking about for the last few weeks, about wanting to see things like this. Yes, so take a listen to this exchange. Uh, Senator Reid, this is the current headline and the current issue of The Economist. America's longest war is ending in crushing defeat. Uh, It's a pretty rough headline. Do you agree with it? It's not accurate. Uh, The purpose that we went into Afghanistan for was to degrade and disrupt uh, al-Qaeda, to limit their ability to project attacks outside of Afghanistan. To a great degree, we've done that. Uh, The job's not over. This is not a closure. This is a transition. Uh, We have to maintain continual involvement, both with the Afghan government uh, by supporting them financially, also providing the kind of technical assistance they need for their Air Force and other elements. Uh, But I think the president was uh, presented with a a bad series of choices. So from Senator Reid's perspective, it was not a defeat. It is not a failure. The U.S. achieved its goal of preventing terrorism from emanating from Afghanistan. Chris Wallace, however, had some tougher questions more specific questions that he asked Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. Take a listen. And joining us now from the Pentagon, Press Secretary John Kirby. Uh, John, the U.S. has spent almost two decades training up the Afghan military and the police. We've spent over $88 billion over that time training them up. Why are they failing so miserably in repelling the Taliban? Which you're right, Chris. Uh, They have much more capacity than they've ever had before, much more capability. Uh, they got a, a, an air force, a very capable air force of helping defend their troops on the ground. They've got very sophisticated special forces who have been in the fight, and they're brave fighters. So this is a moment of leadership. And uh, you heard the president talk about that the other day. It's their right and responsibility now to defend their citizens and their country. And I think when we look back, whatever the outcomes are, Chris, we're going to look back and we're going to be able to say that it came down to leadership, civilian leadership and military leadership in the field. Now, the one thing that we can assure our Afghan partners is while we aren't going to be on the ground with them going forward, we are not walking away from this relationship. I just got to pause it there. I just love that question. It's like we have spent 20 years and $88 billion. And right now they are outnumbered. Naomi, what is the song in Hamilton? Outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, outplanned. I don't know if that's the order, but yes. that's the gist. Yes. Yeah. Essentially, that's the situation. It's like, how is the Taliban winning? This is insane. Just crazy. How do we not see that as a failure? And in response to John Kirby's long answer here, which goes on beyond the clip, Chris Wallace has this follow-up. Yeah, but, but John, you're talking about how well set up the Afghan military is. They're giving up huge swaths of the country. The Taliban now say that they control 85% of the country. I know you dispute that, but the Long War Journal, which tracks this kind of thing, estimates that 13 million Afghans now live in areas controlled by the Taliban, 10 million in areas controlled by the government, yeah. and 9 million in contested areas. And as you just heard Greg Palcott report, the Taliban is now fighting for control of the second largest city in the country, Kandahar, and people are fleeing the country. Are you surprised that the Taliban is making these kinds of sweeping advances so quickly? 
We're certainly watching with uh, deep concern, Chris, the deteriorating security situation and the violence, which is, of course, way too high, and, and the advances and the, t and the momentum that the Taliban seems to have right now. I mean, we're not, we're not unmindful of that, Chris. We're, we're watching it and monitoring it, uh, which is why we are, again, working with our Afghan partners to encourage them to use the capacity and the capability that we know they have, and we know that they know how to defend their country. This is a time for them to step up and to do exactly that. This is so interesting in comparison to what we heard in previous interviews about Afghanistan. That was more about what is the risk of what's the risk of the country if we leave prematurely. And a lot of the responses here are, are about the preparation or how things are different or, you know, while there may be work that has to be done by the Afghani military force, that there's infrastructure there. Right. It's about basically like, look at the work that we did already on this because we're out of here. And I do think you get a sense of the frustration in the Pentagon's perspective on this, which is we spent all this time and energy and money training these folks up. We know they're capable. And yet, as Chris Wallace says at the beginning of this question, a lot of the Afghan military is indeed giving up. You know, Richard Engel, I think it is, talks about how members of the Afghan military are essentially being bought by the Taliban. The Taliban are just, they're surrendering. The Taliban are giving them, I don't know what it is, $80 or something like that. I think it is about $80 they're giving them to just, you know, get out of there, get, get out of the way and let the Taliban take over. And that's okay. Well, just to button it up, to close this thing out, I wanted to end with, with what I thought was one of the most ridiculous given the circumstances, questions from Chuck Todd. But I think Senator Jack Reed had a good way to kind of close out this conversation. Here is, again, Chuck Todd speaking with Senator Jack Reed. You know, after your, I believe it may have been your first trip to Afghanistan in 2002, um, you said you reassured the leadership at the time uh, of Afghanistan that America was going to be involved in the, for the long haul. There was this fear, constant fear among Afghan uh, among Afghan reformists, that whatever we did, we were going to leave. Well, isn't that what's happening? Aren't their greatest fears being realized? Didn't you basically, is that an empty promise that was made? We, we've now turned tail? No, I think some of the factors that we have to consider is that in 2002, we were prepared uh, and we had a permissive situation. We had destroyed the Taliban. One of the critical strategic mistakes was the pivot to Iraq, which I oppose. And one reason I oppose it is I thought it would eventually lead to uh, compromising our resources and our attention to Afghanistan. And it did. We've tried to resuscitate that uh, approach to Afghanistan over several surges. Uh, they have not been successful. And 20 years of effort and thousands of American lives, I don't think represents a, a shallow promise in 2002. I think Senator Jack Reed was very diplomatic there. He could have just said, are you kidding me, Chuck Todd? You're saying that 20 years ago, when I assured people we were there for the long haul, that somehow that was a sh an empty promise? We were there for 20 years. That If 20 years isn't the long haul, if the longest American conflict is not the long haul, what the hell is? And not to mention what is the long haul for the average American who isn't in Afghanistan but has heard the news about it for literally two decades. Or the people in Afghanistan who we learned two-thirds of the country 
doesn't remember a time in their lifetime that the U.S. was not engaged in a war in Afghanistan. Absolutely. But all of these questions overall are worthwhile questions, I will say that, and I think are questions we should be asking our military leaders for sure. All right. Well, that's it for Polylog this week. So vaccine, space, Afghanistan, a real range of topics today. Yeah, just a ton of topics. I also talked about the governor of Texas and the mayoral candidate of of New New York. York It's a packed, packed episode. Packed episode. And which brings us to our dialogue challenge. I think I would encourage our listeners and each other to really have a conversation where someone is pushing you to talk to or speak about or reflect on what are the possible like overarching lessons of some big event big experience big effort something that you did a while ago and how can you use the time to kind of get some insight very very well said and you know there's data out there that says that when people stop and reflect on those sorts of things it improves their mental well-being and happiness with their lives post-processing is is great yeah highly recommend Absolutely. if you have any thoughts about as a country as well as we've learned yeah okay. totally <laughs> if you have any thoughts and want to process something about this show or a previous episode we'll also welcome that you are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at soto naomi underscore you can tweet at me at bstyle and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast thanks everyone and if you've had a chance to rate us oh thank yeah. you so much that's if you so nice please do so. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Thank you so much. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.